Well, I hope you've found 1 Corinthians 16 in your Bible this morning. It's the last chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we'll be concluding our study this morning. Now, along the way in our series, I've tried to highlight different books that might be helpful to you as you think about some of the themes that come up in 1 Corinthians. We have some of those books in the back, and they're at pretty discounted prices this morning if you want to grab one of those or if it would be helpful to you. You can get one of those in the back. We also have a new series that will begin next week. So next week, we start our new uh, series through the book of the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to be getting a series through Luke, and it will extend starting in Advent all the way through uh, next year. And we have some Luke journals in the back. And so if that would be helpful for you, um, I've started in one myself, and I just take it devotionally and just working my way through Luke, really praying through the text, thinking about it. And so if that would help you, we have some of those in the back as well. I think those are $4 um, each, but uh, you can help yourself to some of those resources in the back uh, after the service or in between services. Well, like I said, we're concluding our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this has been a journey for us this year. And in some ways, I feel like it's been very rewarding on one hand and uh, rather challenging on the other hand. I have felt like, and I'm not sure how, how you've paced your way through the book of 1 Corinthians, but I've felt like there are some passages that have been very challenging, uh, difficult uh, to work through. And yet I felt like there are other passages that have been so strengthening for my heart along the way. So I hope that as we come to an end here, you will take time to think through this book as a whole. Like what has the Lord done in your life through the book of 1 Corinthians? How has he convicted you? How has he comforted you? How has he led you and taught you along the way? So this morning, what I'd like to do is just read this last chapter together, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And in doing so, I'd like to bid farewell to a, a good friend from this past year. Let's listen to the word of the Lord as we think about gospel community. Uh, Paul's going to close this book, causing us to think about the gospel community known as the church. Follow along as I read. When I finish the chapter, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace 
that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greeting. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's the teenager's favorite verse. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we can behold your word and all of the wondrous things you have in store for us this morning. Some of us have come this morning perhaps with a little bit of a turkey coma. We're a little tired or drowsy. We ask that you would awaken our hearts to receive your word. We cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so, Lord, we want to hunger and thirst after you. Fill us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, with a raise of hands, how many of you have ever been to a for real family reunion? Okay, many of you. Well, half, half of you. Half of you have been to a family reunion. I'm not sure how popular those are these days, but when I was a kid, we would occasionally travel to a family reunion. Now, I can't remember whether it was North Dakota or South Dakota. It's just, it was a land of barrenness. That's what I remember. <laughs> and I do remember these like little signs and they would have like the name of a town and then population seven. And I just remember as a kid thinking to myself, how is that even possible that they could raise the revenue to have a sign like that? <laughs> but anyways, we would go to these, these family reunions and they were a little bit crazy. Now, how many of you have crazy family reunions? I mean, they're crazy because there's like a weird uncle, you know, there was that guy, I had a weird uncle that tried to convince me that, and he was serious, this wasn't a joke. He tried to convince me that Old Faithful was done with pipes, like the government had some sort of guy down there turning on pipes and turning them off, and he had all these crazy conspiracy theories, and you know, family reunions have weird food. Uh, my mom's side of the family, they were all Czechoslovakian, and so you just like weird foods, strange people, uh, folks you've never met before and hope you never see again. I mean, that's kind of family reunions. There was all this stuff going on. And I don't have a whole lot of things that I remember about the family reunion, but I do remember this. When I left a family reunion, I realized that my family was bigger than I had thought prior to going. You know, when I thought about my family before family reunions, I would think five people. It was me, my two brothers, my mom, and my dad. That's my family. 
But after you go to a family reunion, you get this realization. Whether you like it or not, whether it's good news or not, you have a bigger family than you previously knew. Now, in chapter 16, I think Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church of Corinth, and he wants these people to realize they've got a bigger family than they realize. That they're actually connected to other believers. And I think this is an important close to this book, because if you remember the church of Corinth, do you remember how self-centered they were? How self-focused they were? How proud they were? How internally focused these people were? They were it was all about Corinth. It was all about them. It was all about their gifts. It was all about their prominence. It was all about their pride. It was all about them. And I think at the close, Paul does something interesting here at the close of this letter. He helps them realize that the family of faith, the gospel community, is larger than they previously knew. This internally focused church needed to lift their eyes and realize that there were people, a household of faith, people related to them through Christ, spread all across the empire. And maybe I could summarize that first point in this text this way. Gospel community is international and interdependent. I think that's what Paul's trying to get across in the opening of this letter or this chapter. He's trying to get these people, as he, as he closes the letter with this last chapter, he wants them to understand that the gospel community, the family of faith, is both international and interdependent. He wants them to have a bigger picture of the church. He wants them to broaden the aperture, get past the local context. I even think this is a challenge for us. Like if someone were to ask you, who's your church? You might look around at the people that attend the same service as you and say to yourself, this is my church. And in one sense, you're correct, but not fully correct. Because when you think about the church, there is a local context. But Paul's trying to help us understand in this last chapter, there's also a global context. There's a, an international family. We have to lift our gaze beyond the immediate community and think about the gospel community around the globe. And so here's Paul writing to the church of Corinth, this fragmented, fractured, self-centered, self-absorbed congregation. And he's trying to tell them first, like, gospel community is actually an international community. And you might be thinking, well, where is this in the text? Well, I want to show it to you. What Paul does here is he links Corinth with all of these other churches. And he, he shows this interconnectedness. He does this by talking about churches in five different Roman provinces. He's basically saying there's a community of believers spread throughout the empire. And let me just highlight them for you. Notice in verse 1. In verse 1, he mentions the churches of Galatia. So remember, he's writing to Corinth, but now he's mentioning another group of churches, the churches in, in this province of Galatia. In verse number 3, skip down to verse 3. Notice he's going to talk about the church of Jerusalem. That's the province of Judea. So we've got the church of Corinth, and then he talks to them about Galatia. He talks to them about Judea in verse 3. Look at verse 5. Do you see the next region he's talking about there in verse 5? It's the churches of Macedonia. 
And those are going to include churches like Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. Those are the churches there in that region. He's going to talk about the church of Achaia. Look at verse number 15. The church of Achaia, another region. That's where Corinth was located. He's going to talk about, look at verse 19. In verse 19, he talks about the churches of Asia or Asia Minor. These are going to include those churches. If, if you open the, the book of Revelation, you remember in the opening of Revelation, he, he lists these different churches in the opening book. That's these churches, the churches of Asia mentioned in verse 19. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And what Paul is doing in all this, he, he mentions five Roman provinces, is he's linking these churches together. And he's showing the church of Corinth that there is, in one sense, one big gospel community. A gospel community that spans geographical boundaries. You know, maps have these lines, but the family of faith doesn't have those, those divisions. It spans geographical boundaries. It, it transcends racial boundaries and socioeconomic boundaries. Here in this text, interestingly, I mean, there's, there's a, a diversity of wealth mentioned in this text. And I'll talk about it in a few minutes here. But he's going to talk about a very poor church, the church of Jerusalem, and a church that's fairly wealthy, doing pretty well. That's the church of Corinth. And he's going to say this is one family of faith. So it transcends geographical boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, racial boundaries. I mean, think about the predominantly Gentile churches. And then think about this church in Jerusalem, a predominantly Jewish church. It's going to transcend slave and free. It's interesting in verse number 17. Take a look at verse number 17. He talks about Stephanus, and then he says, Fortunatus and Achaicus. Now, most scholars think Fortunatus and Achaicus are probably slaves that had been freed from Stephanus' house. They're very common slave names. But he links them together here in just one, in, in one line right here. You got Stephanus, Achaicus, and Fortunatus. And it's almost as if he's communicating that the family of faith transcends the slave and free distinctions. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's saying that gospel community is international. Different skin colors, different heart languages, different backgrounds, all connected in Christ. And he wants, I think this is what he wants us to do. He wants us to think about the bigger picture of the church. So let me just ask you, when was the last time you did that? I mean, when was the last time you thought beyond these boundaries, where you took an interest in what was happening in other congregations in this valley or other congregations around the world? I think what Paul does here in the opening with the church of Corinth, helping them recognize that they're connected to other churches is he's reminding us to take interest in other churches, to pray for the gospel to advance in other places around the globe, to pray for safety for our fellow workers in difficult places, to pray for a global movement of the gospel to happen. Do you realize when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he's writing from Ephesus to Corinth, and in this chapter right here, about the church of Jerusalem, including all of these other churches as well. It's like, it's like he's reminding us, 
This is an international family. We're linked with believers around the globe. Gospel community is international and it's interdependent. And what that means is we can't just think to ourselves, oh, there are believers over in that part of the world. No, we have to think to ourselves, do those believers have needs in that part of the world? And what should we do to help them? I think sometimes we, you know, we could take missions and we put it in this little box and it's the slide that opens the service. We have a missions opportunity and we write a check or we give online and then we don't think about global advance of the gospel or the family of faith around the world. We don't think about them anymore. I think what happens in this text is Paul wants the church of Corinth not just to know that there's an international community that they're linked with, but there's actually an interdependence, a connectedness between believers here in Salt Lake City and believers all the way over in Vietnam. Believers here and believers in China, believers here and believers in Brazil, there's a connectedness that he wants us to understand here. And you see that in the opening of the text. Look at verse number one. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 16.1. He says, and, and I just want to highlight the interconnectedness here, the, the interdependence here. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now that opening right there may not mean much to you, but if you read a number of Paul's letters, and specifically, if you want to know more about what is this collection for the saints, you can read more about it in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. He actually takes two chapters to expound on this. But this collection for the saints was a big project that Paul undertook. He realized that there were believers in the church at Jerusalem who were suffering. And most likely, they were suffering because of a severe famine. In Acts chapter 11, we hear about a severe famine that hit the region of Judea. And most likely, the ripple effects of that famine just decimated the church of Jerusalem. They were, they were poor and hungry. They didn't have much. And what's interesting here is, remember, the church of Jerusalem had been the epicenter of the, of the gospel spreading. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. And so here's Paul on this missionary journey going to the uttermost parts of their earth at that, at that time. And he's saying, remember back to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was suffering after this famine. They were impoverished and he is taking up a collection to send back. And I think the reason he wants that is he wants these Corinthians to feel a sense of solidarity, to feel a sense of connectedness with their suffering brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. I think Paul believed also that if they would do this, if this predominantly Gentile church, the church of Corinth, if they would gather up funds and send it back to Jerusalem, it would communicate great love from the Gentile church to the Jewish church. It would communicate great love. It would also communicate a measure of significant unity. I think Paul saw great advantage in the church at large showing love for a place of need. 
When I read this, I just thought, you know, it is so easy for us to think about our own needs that we have right here or to think about our own challenges or difficulties that we're facing, to think about our own goals or our own ambitions, to think about what we want to build or what we want to expand or what we want to save for, and we miss some of the needs of the global church. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying, lift your gaze and remember that there are suffering and needy Christians around the globe. I, uh, I love how some of our members have helped us do this. One of our members helped us get connected as a church, get connected to uh, an orphanage down in Peru. And some of you in this church body sponsor uh, orphans uh, down in Peru. We're connected with the Belin Refuge, which we hope to go visit in 2024 when we take a trip there. But some of you have helped us lift our gaze and think about the needs. There's a pastor down there and his wife who never had kids and they just opened their home and basically opened their home to become an orphanage. And they've got these kids they care for and we're helping with that. I think about some of our members who helped us this season with Operation Christmas Child, just putting together these shoe boxes to send across the globe to places in need with Samaritan's Purse. I received an email from a member this week that wants to engage in medical missions, and they're looking for opportunities about how to do this. What does this imply? It implies we have a heart for other places, that the body of Christ in other places of the world is needy, and we need to be a part of that. There's an interdependence that we need to be a part of. We have a member right now over in Zambia with Phil Hunt who was just texting me yesterday. I'm just thinking, like, this is what we're a part of. We're a part of a global community, and we need, to, we need to understand our part in the interdependence. Not just our needs here, but what are the needs of believers in other parts of the world? Causing me to think, like, what, what needs does Emmanuel Juma have over in South Sudan right now? When I was just thinking about him this week as I wrote this message, I thought, you know, he got mugged, his laptop got stolen. I wonder if he still needs a laptop. I wonder what kind of needs this, this missionary church planner needs in South Sudan. Um, I was thinking about Tim Chapman in Lima, Peru, or John Zimmer over in Palau. Bree in Southeast Asia, or Daniel and Christy in Tijuana. What kind of needs do they have? Because we're at a season, and the reason I want to say this is because we're at a season where we're writing Christmas lists. We're doing Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Crazy Tuesday, Thursday, you know, Brad's deals, whatever. I mean, we're like, okay, we've got all these things going on, but lift your gaze and remember the interconnectedness of the body of Christ and what are some of the needs of our brothers and sisters abroad. Here in this text, the care that Paul wanted for the church of Jerusalem was financial care. I mean, there's no question. He says in the opening line, now concerning the collection for the saints, he actually wants to teach the church of Corinth about giving. And I realize that, you know, you talk about, oh man, finances, these things are kind of private and personal. Let's move on to another part of the chapter. But it's funny, we feel that way in American culture, but Paul didn't really feel that way. He just went for it. Do you know, this is funny about Paul, funny Paul. He was willing to talk to us about our morals and our money. Two things we're not allowed to talk about. 
But Paul didn't take him off the list, did he? I mean, if you've been with us through 1 Corinthians, you realize, man, this guy just, he just goes where nobody else goes. And do you know why? It's because God actually wants us to know his word. This is his will for our life. So when it comes to your morals, well, God has a plan for that. When it comes to your money, God has a plan for that. And so here's Paul, and he's willing to step into this zone because he knew that when Christians give, they're actually, they're actually engaging in an act of worship. I mean, have you been thinking about that as you give? Have you been thinking about worship? I had to stop myself just this last week. I, I'll just confess to you. Um, I have a, a plan and a pattern for my giving, and it is connected each month when I pay the bills, which could have this effect that it's another bill. And I had to intentionally stop this week and separate it from the paying of bills. In my own heart, this is not a bill that I have to pay to God. This is an act of worship. All of my resources belong to him. All of them. I can't take any of my stuff with me. I don't want to lay up treasures on earth. I want to lay up treasures in heaven. I have to actually think, like, God, I want to give this gift as an act of worship. You are worth so much more than this. You've given me so many good things. And it had to be an act of worship. It's an expression of love. We, I think Paul knows that. That's why he's willing to talk about this. Like, when you love people, you give to them. It's, it's a classic expression of love. You give. God so loved the world that he, what? He gave. Do you see that? And it's, it's, that's what we do too. And so Paul knows that. So he's, he just wants to talk to the church of Corinth. He wants to talk about this collection for needy believers in Jerusalem. And if you look at Paul's writings, you could go to the book of Romans chapter 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Galatians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you will see that giving is so frequently mentioned in the New Testament epistles that we can safely conclude that giving was a standard practice for the early church. We see it in church history from Justin Martyr, the early patristics, all the way to the reformers, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. This is what it says. I regularly, Heidelberg Catechism 1563, I regularly attend the assembly of God's people, to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. We just look at Christian history, and what you're going to find is this. Jesus modeled giving, and Christians have followed his example for nearly 2,000 years. Out of joy, as an act of worship, and expression of love, they give. And so look at verse number two. Paul gives us a few pointers on giving in verse number two. Notice he says there's a priority in giving. He says, on the first day of every week. Now, that was when the church gathered. And you get this idea that they're going to they're gonna give on the first day of every week, that they're going to give on the front end of the week as opposed to the back end of the week. And maybe it communicates a measure of intentionality. Maybe giving at the start of your paycheck keeps it from being an afterthought or a tip at the end of your paycheck. Maybe when we learn to give first fruits, then we don't give leftovers and crumbs. And so Paul seems to 
Verse number two, when you gather on the first day of the week, the, the day of Christian gathering, the beginning of your week, that's when you're gonna give. And so he talks about priorities. Notice he also talks about the possibilities of giving. Verse number two, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Now, I love that little section because he doesn't say the rich among you, the independently wealthy among you, the set for life folks among you. He says each of you. And what he means by that is there's the possibility for each of us to participate in giving to those in need. So whether you're a student with a part-time job or a business owner with multiple employees, whether you make minimum wage on the one hand or you make a six or seven figure salary on the other hand, giving is possible. Each one of you, you can be part of fueling ministry and caring for the needy by giving. The priority, the possibility. Notice in verse number two again, there's almost this idea of proportionality in giving. He says in verse two, put something aside, store it up as he may prosper. In other words, in proportion to your wealth or as you have been prospered, so give. I like how this one author, Andrew Wilson, put it. He says, this means rich people can give more than poor. Just like those with larger homes can host more people or those with more time can serve more. The stewardship of our wealth should be proportional to what we have. Notice finally in verse number two, Paul says, there's some practicality in all this. And you see that where he says, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. I think Paul wanted to avoid this like awkward scrambling when he arrived. Like nobody does anything, then he arrives, and they're like, oh yeah, the collection for the poor people at Jerusalem. And then they're all scrambling to do something, and he's standing there being like, oh, I wrote to you guys about this. I think he wants to avoid this awkward scrambling to, to raise funds just when he arrives. And so he advocates like this regular systematic, patterned giving. I think just like most spiritual disciplines, giving is unlikely to happen by accident. And whatever the spiritual discipline you can think of in your life, it doesn't happen on its own. And neither, neither does giving. It, it just requires some practical steps. So I wanna encourage you to partner in the needs of God's people both near and far, and learn to give as Paul instructs the church of Corinth in the same way. Mature Christianity understands the expansive nature of God's people. They're, it's an international community. And they also understand that sometimes they need to make sacrifices for the needs of others. We're interconnected with other believers. So gospel community, number one. I think Paul is saying in this text, it's international and interdependent. Here's the second thing I think he says about gospel community in this closing chapter. He says that gospel community has both obstacles and opportunities. You're going to find both of them. So when you have a gospel community, you're going to find that, wow, there are gospel opportunities. But there are probably also obstacles and opposition as well. Let me explain what I mean from the text here. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians during his stay in Ephesus. So he's in Ephesus, writes this letter, sends it to Corinth. 
This is important to understand because Paul wanted to visit the church of Corinth. Do you remember he says in the text, like, I don't just want to like pass through. I want to spend some time with you guys. I want to even spend the winter there. He wants to spend some significant time with them. But he's writing this letter from Ephesus. And I think he brings that to the surface because he wants to know that he's delayed in coming. And the reason he's delayed is because there are gospel opportunities in Ephesus. So while he's penning this letter, he's kind of like, my heart really wants to come and see you guys. I want to spend some serious time with you, but I'm not going to come right now. And the reason I'm not coming now is because I'm in the middle of some really amazing gospel opportunities here in Ephesus. You see it in verse number eight. Take a look at verse eight. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened for me. Now, if you want to know what is this wide door for effective work that Paul is talking about here, if you want to know more about that, then you can put in the margin of your Bible, Acts chapter 19. In Acts 19, we find out what was going on in Ephesus that kept Paul there. What, was, what, were, the, what were the gospel opportunities that were happening there that caused him to delay his visit to Corinth? In Acts 19, here's what we learn. We learn that Paul had rented this hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, each day, Paul went to this hall, this public forum, and he would preach the gospel. And so Paul is there for two years. There was such success with the gospel. The gospel was spreading to such a degree that Luke writes this in Acts 19, 19. He says, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's almost as if Luke's saying, man, the gospel was just spreading from there. Both Jews and Greeks were hearing God's word. Paul is preaching day after day, two years straight in this hall. Things were happening in Ephesus. I don't know if you remember some of the story of the church getting planted in Ephesus, but Paul stays there because there's these open gospel opportunities. What was happening is that these idolaters who had worshipped the goddess Artemis were turning from idolatry to serve the true and living God. And there were people that were coming in great swaths. I mean, th this is a fact. There were so many people that were being converted from the worship of Artemis, this idol, to the true and living God, to Christ, that it was having a financial effect on the sale of idols in that city. In Acts chapter 19, verse 26, you hear concern from the silversmiths guild. Because remember, there's, a, there's all this gospel opportunity right now in Ephesus. People are turning from idolatry to the true and living God. And to such a degree that the idol makers are concerned, this is what they say. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. There is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Do you hear the concern of the silversmiths' guild? So many people in Ephesus were turning to Christ that they're worried 
Attendance is going down at the temple. Our sales are going down. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 16 when he says, I'm staying in Ephesus for a while longer because there's a great door of gospel opportunity open. Not only were idolaters turning to the Lord in Ephesus, but we also know that there were people who were involved in dark magic and necromancy and witchcraft, and they were turning to the Lord. Do you remember Ephesus was the place where so many of these people who were involved in witchcraft turned to Jesus that they took their books of witchcraft, piled them up in the streets of Ephesus, and lit them on fire. I don't know if you remember that story, but it's in Acts chapter 19, verse 19 and 20. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Imagine if people who were involved in mysticism and spiritism and witchcraft brought $5.5 million worth of their garbage, stuck it in the middle of State Street and lit a bonfire, showing to all these people that Christ is worth more that he is the true and living God, that the spirit of our Lord is the true spirituality we need to pursue. I mean, imagine that. That's what happened in Ephesus. This bonfire of all of this garbage proclaiming that Christ is better, an open door of opportunity for the gospel. And that's why Paul says, that's why I'm not coming to you, Corinthians, right away. I wanna suggest, however, that even though there were these amazing opportunities, Paul was also facing severe obstacles. And the reason I think this is important is because when I first like, was, was trying to contemplate this text a number of weeks ago, I was just, just devotionally reading through. And sometimes this is what I do. I don't have any commentaries or anything. I just have my Bible. I have a pencil. And I'm just reading the text, trying to think it through. And sometimes I'll write questions or objections, or things that confuse me at first glance. And this verse right here was one of those spots that I underlined. Because in verse number nine, notice the pairing. In verse number nine, he says, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Look at all the opportunities for the gospel. A wide door of effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So he pairs opportunity and obstacles together and concludes that God wants him to stay there. In other words, oh, there's advancement, but there's also great hindrance, but God has me right here, so I can't come to you, Church of Corinth. The reason I think this is important is because along with great possibilities, there can also be great persecution. I think we, we need to understand that hostility and opposition don't equal a closed door. Like, it got difficult in Ephesus, but Paul didn't conclude, that means I've got to come to you guys at Corinth right away, because things are heating up here. No, opposition is sometimes part and parcel of God's work in a place. Quite frankly, if you study church history, you find that Christianity will rarely be left unhindered. Most often, when there are advancements of the gospel, there are going to be oppositions to the gospel. 
And that's what Paul was experiencing here. And this is a lesson for us. I think verse number nine is so important for us because we may be of the mindset that we're willing to serve the Lord as long as it stays easy. Or we're willing to advance the gospel as long as there's comfort. But what happens when adversaries rise to the surface? What happens when sickness comes? What happens when there's weakness and trials and tears? I think sometimes we can be tempted to quickly conclude, well, the door must be closing. God must be moving me somewhere else. But I just want to encourage you that hostility and opposition don't equal closed doors. No, my friends, a wide door for effective work is not incompatible with many adversaries. Paul had all sorts of opposition in Ephesus. I mean, we know that he battled evil spirits and demonic forces while he was in Ephesus. What do you think stood behind all those magic books that they burned? There's demonism. Do you remember Paul writes the church of Ephesus and that's where he says, we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness. I mean, that was a place where Paul has these adversaries of spiritual evil spirits. But not only that, he has the opposition of idolaters. The silversmith guild, remember, they were very concerned that they're not selling enough idols. Well, their leader, this guy named Demetrius, you read about it in Acts chapter 19, he stirs up a huge riot in the city. They grab Paul's companions, bring them to this arena, and almost kill them right there. And there was serious opposition from evil spirits, from these idolaters, from Jewish hierarchy. Paul says this, I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. The Jewish hierarchy didn't want him there and he faced opposition on every side. But the presence of opposition doesn't mean that we've moved out of the will of God. I just want to encourage you. You may be doing exactly what God wants you to do. And you say, but I'm facing so much pushback. It might be precisely because you are doing what God wants you to do. Remember what Jesus says? He says this, I will build my church and what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They're going to try. They're going to try. I think Paul felt that while he was in Ephesus. He felt opportunity on one hand hand, and opposition on another hand. Maybe you're trying to, (laughs) I have some friends, this is the case. You're trying to start a chapter of Ratio Christi up at Westminster College and you're opposed by the administration. You're trying to serve on a foreign field and you're faced with sickness. You're attempting to start a Bible study at work but someone complains that you're doing it during the lunch hour. You're trying to spread the good news of Jesus at your, at your Thanksgiving uh, family gathering and someone quickly shuts you down. I just think that sometimes on one hand we have opportunities, on the other hand we have opposition and we need to discern God's will. And the presence of opposition doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Many times in gospel communities, pain and progress go hand in hand. So don't shy away, don't quit. Okay, what are we seeing here? We're seeing that gospel community is number one, it's international and it's interdependent. 
Number two, we're seeing that gospel community has to navigate opportunities on the one hand and opposition on the other. And then as we close this morning, here's the third thing that we can see about gospel communities. And that's that gospel communities need to steward relationships and responsibilities. I think one of the interesting things about the closing of many of Paul's letters is that we encounter places we can't name and names we can't place, as one author put it. We get these geographical spots that we're not familiar with. We have these people mentioned. I mean, have you, have you read many of Paul's letters? You get to the last chapter and he mentions these different people. And we don't know who they are, or he mentions these different places. We're not sure where they are on the map. And so we just try to read quickly and finish up the book. But there's actually something that Paul is saying with these names and places. He's explaining different relationships. At the close in, in chapter 16 here, He's explaining different relationships in this gospel community. And I want to highlight a few. Notice how he mentions this couple, Aquila and Prisca. Prisca is the short name for Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. Look at at verse number 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now, there's just that one line about Aquila and Priscilla, and you may not... Uh, recognize that couple from the brief sentence there. But if you know many of Paul's writings, you realize that this couple seems to show up again and again and again in Paul's different places. Uh, if you trace their story, basically what you're going to find out in the book of Acts, it's recorded that Claudius has a decree to kick the Jews out of Rome. And the reason he does that, there's extra biblical literature that write about this. Claudius, the emperor, finds that there is this uprising about one named Crestus. It's probably misspelling of whom? Of Christ. Among the Jews. So there are probably Jews who were converted following the Messiah, Christ. And there's this uprising in Rome, this disagreement between them. And the emperor, Claudius, is tired of the fighting, and so he kicks all the Jews out of Rome. That's what happens. That's recorded in the book of Acts. Well, Aquila and Priscilla are part of that group of Jews that get kicked out. They're believers, but they get kicked out of of Rome. And where do we meet them? We meet them next in Corinth, where Paul connects with them. After leaving Athens, he meets up with this couple in Corinth named Priscilla and Aquila who have a tent-making business. We often know of Paul, the tent maker. Who did he work with? He worked with this couple. They had a tent-making business, and in the beginning of Acts chapter 18, they fold Paul into this business, and he works with them there in Corinth. The next thing we find, we find Aquila and Priscilla. They're in Ephesus. So Paul has these different places where he's planting churches, and we find Aquila and Priscilla in many of these places. They're in Ephesus. And what do they do in Ephesus? Well, they host the church in their house. Like you've heard of house churches. That's what they actually did. They didn't have any buildings. Aquila and Priscilla used their house to host the church. And not only that, but we find that when they're in Ephesus, they meet with a guy named Apollos, who's also mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 16. Now, Apollos becomes a famous preacher in the, in the first century New Testament world. Apollos is a famous preacher. But do you know who set Apollos on the right path? 
Do you know who it was who straightened out Apollos and told him the way of Christ more clearly? Do you know who it was? It was this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And you see that in Acts chapter 18, verses 25 and 26. They sit Apollos down and they teach him privately so that he can go out publicly and be a more effective preacher. We see him in Rome. We see him in Corinth. We see that they return to Rome. And when they get there, the church meets in their house. That's in Romans chapter 16, verse 5. Aquila and Priscilla have the church in their house at Rome. And then at the end of Paul's ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we find Aquila and Priscilla again, and they're back in Ephesus serving the Lord there. Now, what I love about this couple, and when we think about gospel communities and the relationships involved there, is that Aquila and Priscilla didn't have any formal titles. They had no ecclesiastical offices, but they were critical when it came to the advance of the gospel. They were, they were close friends, and Paul calls them co-laborers and servants of Christ. When it came to the advance of the gospel in Rome, in Corinth, and in Ephesus, this couple, they were business owners who loved Jesus and leveraged their resources for the advancement of Christ's name. When you think about the relationship that Paul had with them, this couple encouraged Paul when he had difficult seasons of ministry. This couple used their business to help Paul even survive doing tent making. This couple supported Paul along the way. This couple hosted the church in their home in at least two different cities. They leveraged their lives, all that they were and all that they had, for the advance of Christ's name and the furtherance of ministry. So when we think about gospel communities, I just think about relationships like this. Do you know Gospel Grace Church, there are people in here that are like Aquila and Priscilla? People who have leveraged their lives and leveraged their businesses and leveraged their resources. They don't have an ecclesiastical title. Uh, they've just done this because they love the name of Christ. And they actually have an eternal perspective. They're not just trying to build stuff for the here and now. They want to leverage their lives, their gifts, their business, their resources, their talents, their time. They're just leveraging them for something greater than themselves. And I just love that. These sort of relationships are the sort of relationships that advance gospel community. And so Paul mentions them here in this text. But I think it's not just relationships. There's also these responsibilities associated with gospel communities. And here he talks about the responsibility of receiving and sending leaders. He mentions Timothy. Did you catch that when I was reading the text? Notice verses uh, 10 and 11. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 16, 10 and 11. When Timothy comes, and this might be curious to some of you, like why is he saying this about Timothy? When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may re return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." I think those are interesting verses. It's almost as if Paul is forecasting. He's like, he's wondering if there's going to be some sort of foul play when Timothy gets to Corinth. He's wondering if he's going to be treated with some sort of shameful disregard. What do you people think you're going to do to Timothy when he comes? Don't do it. You're treated peacefully. Take it easy on the guy. He's doing sincere gospel work. Send him on his way in peace. Don't despise him. Like, you hear these little echoes along the way. And you're almost wondering, like, Paul, why are you, why are you saying that to this church? 
Well, if you know anything about Corinth, you know, as one author put it, Corinth was a city where only the best and brightest came to play. Credentials and status were everything. Where an individual attended school mattered. Degrees mattered. An occupation mattered. It was the place where people would ask questions like, how much do you make and where do you live? It was the kind of sizing up that happened all the time, time and time again in Corinth. And you almost wonder if Paul knew that that was the atmosphere of this place. And so he sends this kind of this warning. Paul knew that they treated him that way. Like he received so much scrutiny from the church of Corinth. If you get to 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to have to defend his own apostleship to this group of believers. So if Paul had to do that, you almost wonder, how are they going to treat Timothy? And so he writes those verses, verses 10 and 11 reminding them to treat him well. He's a faithful leader. Show him respect for his work's sake. Verse 10, he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. I think this is important because it's almost like maybe they liked Paul better than Timothy or, and maybe they received him better than Timothy or maybe they liked Apollos better. Do you remember the opening of the book of Corinth? Everybody's kind of has their favorite person. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Do you remember that? And he's saying, no, 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 you receive these leaders. Show them respect for their work's sake. It's not about the one you jive with best. You know, I, I think about that even here at Gospel Grace. I mean, maybe, maybe you just really connect with one of the pastors much better. You know, you think Will's jokes are so much funnier. Or you think Jotham's intellect is exceptional. Or Josh's style is lit, legit, <laughs> whatever sick. Well, some other brother might be lacking in some of those areas. But Paul's instruction is to receive spiritual leaders with kindness and peace and goodwill. And here's why. For their work's sake. Not because you like their personality best, not because you laugh at their jokes best, but for their work's sake. He kind of repeats this and expands this admission In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so here, as Paul writes to the church of Corinth, he says, receive Timothy, receive him, and then at the end, send him well. In other words, help him on his way, help him on his journey, resource him, with the needed support so that he can continue his ministry. And what Paul is doing in this section is just reminding the church of their responsibilities towards spiritual leaders to receive and send them. But also he says there's another responsibility and that's to respect their leaders and submit to them. And you see this interestingly with a case study of Stephanus. Do you see it in verse number 15? Take a look at verse 15. We're almost done, but I'm just mentioning this name because I want you to see what he says here. Stephanus. He says, the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. He goes on in verse number 16. He says, be subject to such as these. He goes on in verse number 18. Give recognition to such people. He's talking about the responsibilities of the church towards their leaders to respect them and follow these spiritual leaders. And what's interesting here is he wraps up the whole book. He's given these little case studies. 
And you may not catch this, but I imagine the Corinthians did. The church of Corinth, and you've, you've, you've traced with us through this book, the church of Corinth was all about these flashy gifts, these famous people, these pompous displays of wealth, remember? Head covered or head uncovered, showing the gold in your hair, all these things. Stratified gatherings. Some people get to sit at a table. Other people have to stand in the foyer. Some people get good food. Others get nothing. It was all about elitism and popularity and things like that. Do you remember? That was the essence of Corinth. And at the end of the letter, Paul says, do you want to know what spiritual leadership really looks like? Look at the house of Stephanus. They have devoted themselves, verse 15, to the service of the saints. In other words, spiritual leadership looks like loving service. That's what he says. To the church of Corinth who wanted to be first. To the church of Corinth who wanted to be recognized. To the church of Corinth who wanted to be flashing up front and grab the mic. To that church, he says, you want to know what spiritual leadership looks like? It looks like loving service. The greatest among us is servant of all. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 20. The first is the last. Leadership in the, in the church isn't about the most education. It isn't about the showiest gifts. It isn't about the most charisma. It's about those who serve others in love. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Isn't that the way of our Lord? Jesus, he took up a basin and a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. He served them. He devoted, our Jesus, devoted himself to others in love all the way to the cross. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so with the thought of Jesus on our minds, as it was in Paul's mind, when he closes this letter. May our Lord come soon and may his grace be with us all. Amen.